Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. As we carry on through Isaiah, we're going to be in Isaiah 37 today. Uh, Now, just a a note on what we're going to attempt, let's put it that way, to do this morning. We're we're going to look at Isaiah 36 through 39. We're not going to read all of that because that would take probably about 20 minutes to, to read through it all. But this whole passage of scripture is one story. It's one narrative. It's, it's a definitive moment in the book of Isaiah. Thus far in Isaiah, we have had a lot of promises, haven't we? God promises, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to take care of you. And all of these wonderful things have been promised. And, and up till this point, we haven't seen a lot of those promises fulfilled. And think about it this way. You're, you're living in Isaiah's day and things keep being promised. At some point you say, well, well when are these promises going to come true? I'm I'm waiting. And so in this text today, we get an answer finally to one of these promises that God demonstrates for us in this text this morning that he is a God who is faithful. And this, these passages sort of fit right in the middle of the book of Isaiah in terms of where we're going. There's a lot of poetry, there's a lot of sort of promise coming up, and then there's this historical narrative right here in the middle of the king of Assyria coming and failing to take Jerusalem. And then after that, we'll get to messianic prophecies. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read Isaiah 37. We're going to read 14 through 21, and then we're going to skip down and pick up in verse 33. This is God's Word. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Continuing in verse 33, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in his house of Nerach, his god, Adaralamach and Shazazar, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after that, he escaped into the land of Ararat. Esherhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we seek to understand it this morning, Lord, would you give us clarity? Would you give us insight into your word? Would you help us see that these events uh, years ago are not just distant, odd events in history, but actually matter? 
for who you are and your character and our ability to trust in your deliverance today. Would you guide us now? Would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't know if you have uh, your reaction when your doorbell rings. I think I read something recently that said uh, people used to like it when their doorbell rang, and people would say, I wonder who it is. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's somebody I want to talk to. And now when the doorbell rings, what do we do? I don't know what you do. Maybe you hide. Maybe you check your ring doorbell and see who it is, if it's worth, or sort of say, just, just leave it there and, and not answer the door. I say that because there, that's a moment where somebody is asking us to make a response, right? The doorbell has been rung, and we're supposed to do something whether it's ignore it, whether it's move on, whether it's answer it. And that's, that's a common experience in our life, isn't it? When somebody sort of comes to us or a situation or a circumstance comes to us and we have to respond to it. That's what we find in this text in this morning. Now, quite literally, the king of Assyria has come to the door of Jerusalem. And you can't ignore the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is there. He sent his envoy in front of him, and he is before God's people, and he's basically saying, as we've read through a few texts this morning, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? The king of Assyria is here. Now, that might seem super distant to us. The king of Assyria is not at our door. The king of Assyria is dead. He's not here. But for us, as we read this text, there are many moments in our life that, that resemble in some sense what we see in this passage. A circumstance, a situation, uh, something in our life has come before us, and we have to respond to it. And the question for us is, how are we going to respond? What are we going to trust? Maybe it's something as, as simple as, you know, if I make this decision and, and everything sort of goes, falls apart, what's going to happen then? Can I trust this person? What's school going like, to look like this year? What's my job going to look like? What does retirement actually look like? These, these situations that, that aren't maybe as tra- traumatic and, and massive as the king of Assyria at our door are nonetheless the situations that God places us in and asks us to do something. Back in verse 4 of Isaiah 36, this is the question that God's people are asked by the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? On what do you rest this trust of yours? Now, many of us, if we're here this morning, have some degree of trust in God. Maybe we've made a a profession of faith. We've trusted in God. We've said, only in Christ can I be saved. Maybe we just have a vague sense that God is is there, and maybe I should trust Him. Wherever you, you may be on that sort of spectrum, this question is for all of us. On whom have you placed your trust? Maybe another way of asking this, if you're a believer here, if you know the gospel, if you're trusted in Christ, is to ask the question, can I believe this all again today? Have you woken up and thought that? Can I actually believe all of this again, that Jesus died, that he rose, that my salvation is in him, that Jesus, that Christ, that God himself is actually trustworthy? Can I trust that again today? I hope that as we look at this text, we together will see that that is actually something we can confidently say, yes, I can trust God again today. How can we see that? Well, let's look first at the peril of this king. Looking at parts of uh, Isaiah 36 here, we see the context of this king coming. And and just to to fill us all in, the king of Assyria, if you've ever read anything about uh, ancient history, is somebody who is appropriately feared. He comes, and usually what happens when the king of Assyria rolls up to your city is you just surrender. Because he has a track record. If you put up any resistance, he annihilates the city. 
He has siege works. He has a very sophisticated army that he comes with, and they would lay siege to a city, and we see some notes of the devastation that those sieges brought, but he would be merciless. I won't go into all the details here on Sunday morning, but he left evidence for everyone to see that if this, if you put up any resistance, it will not go well for you. And up to this point, he has been virtually unstopped. He lists nation after nation, city after city that has capitulated, that has fallen, that has been overrun by his, his army. And so this is the moment, and it's actually interesting. He comes, the, the emissary, the, the leader of the army comes, and he goes to a very significant place in the book of Isaiah. We see it in the early parts of Isaiah 36, where he goes to the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And we say, okay, what's that about? Well, if we go back to Isaiah 7, uh, King Hezekiah's dad actually was in that same spot with Isaiah, that very same spot when his dad basically turned and said, I can't trust God. I need help. I need somebody else to come and support me instead of trusting God. And so in this this place that has been used before, we see another king come, this King Sennacherib, and say to God's people, who are you going to trust? And not only does he do that, but he then challenges God's people over and over again in the next, really, chapter and a half of Isaiah and say, your God can't do anything. I've seen gods before. In fact, I've destroyed them before. He would have followers of God's destroy their God, burn their God, or we take their God back to his temple in Nineveh to destroy it and to show his dominance over all these gods. We see some notes of this in the text. He, he sort of says to the point where, if this is who I am and what I can do, then, then really you should just give in. Verse 16 of Isaiah 36 that we read earlier as God examined our hearts says this, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And then what does he do? He says, each of you can stay really where you are. You can stay with your own fig tree, and you will each have your own vine. This king of Assyria uses the promise that God had given his people that they would each have their own fig tree, be under their own vine. That is a symbol of things going well. Back in the book of Kings, when King, Sam, or king Solomon is on the throne and Israel really is at its, its peak, it's at its best point, that's how it's described. And the king of Assyria comes and says, you don't need to fear me, just come out to me, just Treat me as your king. Just follow my gods, and then you can have your peace. The peril will go away. And so he offers this, this way out for, his, for these people. And then he goes directly and says, the Lord will deliver us in verse 18. He says, beware of that, because you can't trust that. And so this is a very in-your-face sort of assault on everything that God's people hold dear. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond? How is the king going to respond? In this moment, it would make sense to go and say, okay, whatever you want, king of Assyria, just just let us live. There's something bigger going on in this story. It's the issue of God and his name and his glory and all of what God's people are supposed to hold dear and follow. Will they give all that up? Will they trust this king of Assyria? Now, I get that it's weird to talk about Assyrians and say, okay, this is somewhat related to me. This happened about 2,700 years ago, this event. And we actually have some pretty good historical uh, evidence corroborating what we see in the Bible uh, with other accounts from the Assyrians. But about 2,700 years ago, this event transpires. 
And so I get, I, I, I want to just acknowledge sort of the, the oddity of that to say, how is this particularly relevant to my life? Well, I think what the king of Assyria does here is very much what sort of not just the culture, but just the world as it is does to us. There are really two uh, avenues of assault, so to speak, that the king of Assyria launches in this letter to the king Hezekiah. One is sort of an intellectual assault. It's sort of saying, can you really trust that this God is sufficient for you? Because that nation over there has a God, and this nation over here has a God, and they're gone. So why is your God going to actually do anything? And so there's an intellectual sort of assault that comes, and I think that's relatable to us in many ways. And then additionally to that, the other sort of avenue of attack comes with this idea of the circumstances. The situation is just so overwhelming that we say, I don't know if God can get me out of this. There's nothing statistical. There's no sort of strategy left. In fact, the king, Sennacherib, basically says, are your words going to do anything against my strategy? And we can feel that. Maybe, you know, not somebody coming and attacking us physically, but, but the circumstances of life can seem so insurmountable that we say, how is God actually going to do anything? How is he actually going to carry me through this? How is he going to carry me forward? One proponent of this sort of school of thought of attacking our faith in Christianity, uh, Richard Dawkins, maybe you've heard of him, in his book, The God Delusion, said this, we are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one god further. And in a sense, that's what the king of Assyria is asking God's people to do, is just to go one, one god further. Your god can help you. And so what are we to do with this? How do we respond to this? This is where the, the story is going to help us. But we need to maybe just pause for a moment and acknowledge that, that that challenge can be very experientially real to us. Maybe we could articulate a, a good sort of apologetic for God. If you have questions about that, we can talk. But maybe you could do all of that. Maybe, maybe if you, you could do all of that, and yet there are times in your life where the circumstances and the situations and even some of those intellectual arguments seem very insurmountable. Seem very difficult. It's a moment that we ask questions like, will God actually be there for me? Will he actually carry me through? Maybe we're reluctant to, to trust. There's a fear that if we trust God fully, then things are going to unravel. What is Hezekiah going to do here? Is he going to trust God fully, or is he going to try to manufacture an alternative way out? It's not to say we don't strategize. It's not to say we don't plan. But where is our trust actually resting? And in these moments when there's pressure on us, that's usually where the fault lines in our lives begin to show up, and we begin to capitulate, like his father did before him, as many kings in other places in Scripture do. In these moments where they're tested, instead of saying, God is actually going to be enough for us, they find another way out. It started with Saul, and it really doesn't change throughout all the kings. They all, in this moment of crisis, go and say, I've got to find a way to manufacture a way out for me. But what does this king do? What does King Hezekiah do? What example does he provide for us? Well, if we pick up the story in the text we read together in verse 14, we see that he has received a letter from the hand of the messengers. So some, some envoys have sent this letter to him, and in this moment, the last city has fallen north of Jerusalem. All the cities around Jerusalem have fallen. He's literally surrounded. His last stronghold, the city of Lachish, has fallen. What's he going to do? Well, we see before that he's already prayed, but here he goes again, and he prays. 
That's what he does. He takes the letter and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He literally takes the mail and says, God, how do I respond to this? This doesn't make sense. How are you going to do anything? Verse 15, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And the very first thing out of his mouth in verse 16 acknowledges who God is. He said, O Lord of hosts. Maybe your Bible has something like, O Lord of armies. It's literally what it's, it's getting at. O Lord of heavenly armies, the one who, as I've heard prophesied by Isaiah, is strong enough to defeat the Assyrians. He goes to this God, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. He goes to the true God and he says, this is who you are. And it's a wonderful moment of of this king coming and praying appropriately to the one who is the true king, realizing that Hezekiah can't do anything here. He doesn't have another card to play. He doesn't have another maneuver. He's tried that. If you read the rest of the text, you'll see moments where he he sort of hopes that maybe Egypt will come and, and help him. But no, Assyria took out the Egyptian army. And so there's really no recourse left. There's this moment where he's even, if we read the parallel account to this in the book of Kings, where Hezekiah has gone to the point where he stripped gold off the temple and sent it to the Assyrians to say, maybe if we give him this, he won't come. Every card's been played. The Assyrians are still coming. No tribute, no sort of maneuvering will get him out of this, this moment. And so he prays. He prays with honesty, verse 17, incline your ear. O Lord, and hear, open your eyes. There's an honesty there, a, a sense that he, in his experience, God seems to be distant. Doesn't mean God is, but in this moment, he says, God, clearly you're not looking at this situation. Would you open your eyes so that you would do something? Open your eyes and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib. Here they are, literally in this letter. And instead of playing just to his security, what does he say? Which he has sent to mock the living God. He goes to God and says, God, your glory and your name is on the line in this situation. Now, this is a bold prayer move. I don't think this is something we replicate in every one of our prayers. When just something isn't going well in our life, we say, God, if I don't get this, you're going to be mocked. It's not what this text is saying. But it is saying in these these massive moments, because what is on the line here is the salvation of God's people, the promises to David. Everything that has been said will come true is all sort of on the line here. And, And Hezekiah comes in his human wisdom, not knowing the whole picture of what's happening, but in his human wisdom comes to God and says, God, defend your name. Verse 18, truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations of their lands saying, don't let us, the people of Judah, your people, become like all these other nations and all these other gods who are no gods at all, who have been the work of men's hand, and they've been destroyed. Now, it's worth noting that these things, as they're destroyed, it's not as if um, the Assyrians thought that their little wooden thing was a god. No, that was a representation of the sort of the spiritual reality. But here, all of this comes to a head as Isaiah shows us Hezekiah's words that say, will God defend himself. And so there's this wonderful prayer, and as we see, he, he comes and he prays, and, and literally, verse 21 says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, we get this answer. Now, I'm not going to read the, the whole thing, but we see the, the gist of it as we go down the page, that there is this kingdom prayer that is, is answered. And I think many of us need to see this picture because we, we struggle to trust We struggle to trust fully the fullness of God. We struggle to see that in those moments, 
Yes, maybe we pray, but the desperation, the fullness, and the honesty of the prayer here, I think, is something that is an example to us. To pray not with trepidation, but with, with a degree of full boldness, knowing that he is a God who is not distant, but one who is, who is near to us. So what happens? With this prayer being made, this is the moment. Now, it's interesting that, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's historical evidence of what happened here. Um, there's some writings of Assyria. And so historians will look at this moment in history and say, what actually happened? There's no reason Jerusalem should have been pummeled, taken out. In fact, a number of years ago, some military historians wrote a book uh, called What If? And they looked at famous battles in history and said, what if this one little thing hadn't happened? And so the typical battles, Battle of uh, Midway, Battle of D-Day, um, Battle of Long Island and the Revolutionary War, all of these sort of pinnacle moments where, where something dramatic happened. And the author who writes about this battle here in 701, the siege of Jerusalem, says this, Never before or since has so much depended on so few, believing so wholly in their one true God and in such bold defiance of common sense. As we look at this, there's no reason for God's people to win, but what happens? God promises in verse 33 that there will be no king of Assyria who sets foot in the city of Jerusalem. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that means all of God's people who follow David. And what happens? This angel of the Lord comes and strikes down this large number of Assyrians. And that might be a difficult thing to sort of wrestle with. I think it's important to remember the, the, the violence and the heinousness of the Assyrians. What they had done was absolutely atrocious. And so there is a, a retribution, a punishment for their actions here in this moment. And as God protects his people, they come and they arise and they see their enemies gone. They wake up one morning and the hordes of the Assyrians aren't there anymore. It's a moment of supreme deliverance. This prayer has been answered. The, the salvation has come. The angel of the Lord who is of the Lord of hosts has come and has brought in victory. And that, again, might seem so distant, but I think we need to sit here and just sit for a moment and say, this is a, a massive moment. I think that's helpful where we compare it to some of the historical accounts and, and look as historians look at this, they say, there's no reason this should have happened. There's no reason this should have happened. So the, the king of Assyria would like to record his events. And so we can, they've dug up in Nineveh sort of some of his, his writings and the various accounts of his campaigns. And there's one in particular that is it's this prism. You can go look it up online. You can't read it because it's in cuneiform, but um, you can look at it. And they'll sort of say, this is the part here that is talking about this particular battle. And in this campaign, what he does is he comes, the, the king, Sennacherib, comes and he says, I took out Judah's 46 cities walled cities. And he gives this account of just destruction after destruction, of killing king, of leveling cities. But then as he gets to the part where he describes King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, he says this, himself, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, in his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. But as secular historians have looked at that, there's this noting, notable uh, absence Unlike any other of his exploits, he never says he took out King Hezekiah because he didn't. He never says he leveled Jerusalem because he didn't. And it's this beautiful moment where we see sort of the archaeology confirming what we see in Scripture of God delivering his people. That God is a God 2,700 years ago that said no to the king of Assyria. He said, no, I am the true king. 
And so for us, we see this, this wonderful picture of, of salvation, and we need stories like that. We need a story like this to, to remind us that the gospel is true, that the God we're dealing with is a, is a trustworthy God, because it's really easy to slowly have our trust eroded. As life is difficult, as things don't seem to go the way that we hoped and dreamed, we begin to question and say, God, can I really trust you? So we need God's word, his truth, to come and recalibrate, reform our minds to see the, the truth of this. Maybe a, a simple way of, of illustrating this is think about a new technology that you've um, had to encounter. I was seeing an ad the other day for self-driving cars. And I think any, all of us will see a car driving by itself with a, you know, the, the driver just sort of sitting with their arms crossed. And we're like, no, that's dangerous, right? Ten years from now, we'll all be just sipping coffee and driving down the interstate with our self-driving cars. Maybe, maybe not. We can talk about that later. I bring that up because there are these, these things in our life that we're so used to technologies or whatever they may be, and we come to depend on them so much so that we, we kind of forget that there was a period of time where we didn't know if that would work. We didn't know if self-driving cars would work. We didn't know if wireless printing would work. We didn't know if, you know, you name it, cars would work to begin with. And there's a, there's a parallel, I think, to our experience with God that, that sometimes we look at him and we say, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if he's going to come through. But what do we see again and again and again in Scripture? 2,700 years ago, 2,000 years ago on the cross, we see him being faithful. We see him doing what he said he would do, caring for his people, not leaving them, but bringing deliverance to them. And we need to take that into our stories, our places in our lives where we say, I don't know if I can trust him. Can I believe this all again? The answer is yes, you can. Because of what happens in these verses, but also what happens on the cross, Let's look at one other part of this text this morning. Very quickly, verse, or Isaiah 38 and 39 tell another story. Now, the chronology here has changed a little bit. Isaiah sort of takes these two events that don't happen sequentially, but puts them beside each other to make a point. Right after this, we see Hezekiah getting sick. He's sick to the point of death. He prays to God again in faith and says, God, he cries out to him and says, I don't want to die yet. And so God gives him 15 more years. And we see this wonderful picture in Isaiah's life of him trusting in God. Verse 17, which we read this morning earlier, says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. Talking about his sickness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. It's this beautiful picture. And it would be almost logical at this point in the book of Isaiah to say, Is Hezekiah the Messiah who was to come? Because he's fulfilling a lot of prophecies. He's checking a lot of boxes. He's delivering God's people. He's rejoicing in salvation. But then something happens in Isaiah 39. What happens is there is a, the king of Babylon, who is the next nation after Assyria to sort of rule everything, and he sends envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. This is in verse 1 of Isaiah 39. And so, because he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered, and it seems in this moment that, that Babylon is sort of angling maybe to get Hezekiah on his side, but what does Hezekiah do? He brings these Babylonians into Jerusalem, and he gives them a tour. He shows them all the gold in the storehouse, all the riches of the temple. Verse 5, we'll read here. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and there shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. And this ends Isaiah's account of of Hezekiah. What do you note in that? You see this king who, in this moment where things seem to be going so well, he stumbles. He proves that he isn't the Messiah. He proves that he can't fully deliver his people. And and we see this this failure. The book of Chronicles talking about this story identifies the sin of pride as what Hezekiah has in this moment. He pridefully goes and says, all will be well. Did you catch that peace and security when in my day? He's not thinking of the future. He's not thinking about the coming generations who will rely on God. He says, no, things will be okay in my day. Let the Babylonians come. He shows no remorse, no security. And so we're left in this moment looking for somebody else. The good news is that as we get into Isaiah 40 next week, we'll see that someone comes to comfort God's people. And that someone is the Messiah. And so in this moment, we can look with hope and with confidence and know that we really can believe this all again. One last illustration, not from Scripture, but from church history. Maybe you've heard of an individual named Thomas Akempis. He wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ back in the, the 1400s. I bring this up because he wrote a book in the middle of a time not too dissimilar from ours. It was a time where there was still the Black Death sort of raging across Europe, a time of incredible political division, both sort of within the governments but within churches. All of these things, as you read about his time, and say, okay, so 600 years ago, things weren't that different. What did he write? He wrote, as he struggled to understand the Christian faith, he said this, when you have Christ, you are rich and have enough. He will be your faithful and provident helper in all things. So you shall not need to trust in men. He will be your friend. He will be enough for you. And put all these things together, examples from church history, the truth of God's word here in Isaiah, and we see the wonderful truth that we really can believe this all again today. Because it's true. Because we have a God who is faithful, who is not far off, but one who is near to us. The one who in our sin that would separate us from God has brought forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And as verse 17 reminds us, but in love you have delivered my life. Don't miss that love. It's not just a God who cosmically is declaring his glory, but he does those very things for his love that has delivered my life and your life. That's what we can cling to and hope to today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you point us to the hope that we have in Christ? Would you show us that when the knock on the door, so to speak, comes from the king of Assyria, however that translates into our life, that we can know that you are a God who is sufficient for us. Maybe even with Isaiah saying, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness because I saw your love and your care. Would you show us that today, even as we meet at the table? We ask in Christ's name, amen.